We're going to continue with our study of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, particular uh, the, the Lord's Prayer. We've spent the last several weeks uh, in the Lord's Prayer. And as you're turning uh, into uh, to Matthew chapter 6, I want to ask you guys a question uh, this evening. How many of you have ever uh, felt guilty? Let me, let me say that again. How many of you have ever felt guilty? I think every hand should go up, right? Um, let, let me ask you this. How did that make you feel? How did that... <laughs> and that ain't smart Alex in here in weeks. But, but how, I mean, really, how did you feel about that guilt? I mean, what did, what did it feel like? It feels like you can't get away from it. Okay. Yeah. Um, you feel like a weight... On you, uh, guilt, uh, you know, makes you feel sad. Maybe you feel helpless in your guilt, like you can't get away from it. Guilt, something that came into the world as a result of the fall, right? Uh, before sin came into the world, we we didn't know what guilt was. Here, well, here's why: guilt is uh, is actually associated with disobedience. It's directly linked with disobedience. The reason why we feel guilty is because we've done something wrong. Right? That's right. We, we blame because of guilt. Yeah, we pass the buck. Absolutely we do. And, and through Adam and Eve's sin, right, we, we have this sense of guilt that's passed down to each of us, do we not? You know, we talk about how sin is, is passed down from generation to generation. It, it's in our DNA, right? It's in our makeup. It's who we are. We, we are born sinners. And, and because of that, we are born Guilty. We have this innate sense of guilt in our heart from the very beginning, right? Because we have, are, have been born into disobedience. And so we are well acquainted with guilt. We, we know what it's like. We know what it feels like. We don't like it. In fact, guilt is proof of our sin nature, right? Uh, you say, well, I'm not a sinner. Have you ever felt guilty? Yes, you are, right? So, so the feeling of guilt affirms that we are not Innocent, And that's what I want you guys to understand tonight as we get into this issue that Jesus is talking about, about forgiveness. None of us are innocent. We are all guilty. And because we're not innocent, one of the deepest needs of the human heart is forgiveness. All of us have a longing in our heart to be forgiven, to have that guilt removed from us, Right? We all long for that. Many of us may not know where to get that. And so tonight we're going to see where that comes from. I remember when I was 16. How many of you remember when you were 16? How many of you want to forget when you were 16? Um, I, I didn't get started out in my driving career very good. Uh, every wreck that I had, every ticket except for one I had when I was 16. And I had a few. I... Uh, Actually had some encounters on my front porch with a state trooper one night. That was not fun. That was interesting. But but I didn't get started off on the right foot. And I can remember when you see that when you see that blue light in your rear view, that that feeling in your stomach, right? You know what I'm talking about? Ugh. And, and yeah, you just feel sick, right? And I and you know it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you blame your offense on. The reason you feel that way is why. Because you know you're guilty. Right? I had to learn a long time ago, policemen just don't randomly pull people over. What makes you feel good when he drives past you that keeps on Yeah. But that didn't happen to me a whole lot when I was younger. But, yeah. But I, I, you feel that way because in your heart, you know, man, I am guilty. I have done something wrong, and that's why he is there. But I learned something uh, very early on about our judicial system, and it was great. You ever heard of a prayer for judgment? What is a prayer for judgment? Anybody know what that is? That's a second chance. <laughs> it's, it's where you go before the judge and you say, you, never, you, don't, you don't admit your guilt or your innocence. You say, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to let you decide whether I'm guilty or not. And so you are literally going before this judge saying, I want you to tell me whether or not I'm guilty or not. And usually... If it's your first time, if it's a minor traffic offense, they'll, they'll dismiss it, but with stipulations, right? Can't get another ticket, 
Maybe you have to go to driving school or whatever. I've done all that stuff, right? You get traffic judgment. You get traffic judgment. You get a ticket for the same thing in three years. Bring it all back on you, right? Yeah. yeah. But I remember walking out that first time when uh, I got that prayer for judgment, and I just remember feeling like the weight of the world had been taken off me. And isn't that a good feeling? To know that your guilt, knowing you're guilty, has been pardoned. That's a great feeling, isn't it? I mean, I walked out of that thing, I was on top of the world, right? Until I got that next ticket. <laughs> My point is, the judicial system that we live under shows us, teaches a whole lot about guilt and forgiveness. It is a direct reflection of the desire and the need of every heart. We know we're guilty. We know it. If we're honest, we're guilty. And we have this thing in us, this desire to be forgiven. All of us have it. If you're a human being, you have that. And so this next part of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is teaching about this exact issue. We see in Matthew chapter 6, there are three petitions that Jesus tells us that we can go before God with. We talked about the first one a couple weeks ago. What was that petition? When he said, give us this day our daily bread. What was that petition for? What was he telling us to pray for? Anybody eat today? Who ate today? Who ate more than he needed to today? That's what really what we talked about. But our daily bread is our, our provisions, our physical provisions for today. It's not just limited to food, but give us what we need to physically exist, right? And, and, and so that first petition is going before God saying, God, I understand and I acknowledge that you alone are the giver of all those things. I don't have it within me, the ability to go to work. I don't have the ability to breathe breath in my lungs on my own. I need you to provide those things for me, right? And so that's what Jesus is saying. Give us this day our daily bread. So that's the first petition. The next two petitions, the one we're going to talk about tonight and next week, uh, deal with spiritual petitions. Our things that pertain to our spiritual life that affect our relationship with God, but also with one another. How are we in standing with God and with each other? What are the things that we need in our life and able to have right standing with God? And one of them, as Jesus is going to point out, is forgiveness. We must have forgiveness in order to have right standing with God. And so before we get into the text, I want to remind us of something about the Lord's Prayer that we've got to keep in the forefront of our mind as we continue our study. One of the main things that Jesus is trying to teach us in this Lord's Prayer is about having the proper perspective in our praying. Going to God the right way for the right reasons. We talked about effective and ineffective prayer, right? Effective prayer is when we go to God understanding who He is, right? Jesus teaches us that right off the bat. By telling us who we're talking to. Our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. So, so we've got to understand who we're talking to when we pray, right? He's not a genie. He's not our buddy. He is God in heaven. He is our Father. And we go before him with reverence. We go before him with awe. But we also go, with, go before him as our dad. And we climb up in his lap and we share our, our hearts with him. But then we also understand um, that the most important things that we're to pray for are what? His kingdom and his will. Jesus tells us, focus, get the right perspective on what really matters in this life. It's not so much what you have. It's not so much the health that you have or whatever. It's the fact that his kingdom is lived out in your life just like it is in heaven and that his will is done in your life just like it is in heaven. And then once we've got the proper perspective of those things, then we can begin to petition him for the things that we need. And so we've got to maintain the correct perspective in our praying. And I'm telling you, we've got to get the right perspective about forgiveness in order to have effective prayer life before our Father. And that's what this is talking about tonight. So uh, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to go through three verses tonight. And then I've got another um, parable I want to read to us that explains what Jesus is saying here. So Matthew 6. Let's start with uh, verse 11, and I'm going to read 11, 12, and then skip down to 14 and 15. So here's what Jesus is saying. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Go down to verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also 
forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Has some heavy, heavy words. There's a lot we've got to understand. And if we don't understand this prayer correctly, we're in danger of committing a huge heresy in our belief system. If we're not careful, we can read this and say that the only way God will forgive me is if I've forgiven everybody else first. It's not what this is saying. However, however, our ability and desire to forgive others is very contingent upon his forgiveness of our sins. They are linked. All right, so we're going to talk about that tonight. The, the first thing I want us to look at is the, the next petition is directly related to the, the one we talked about last time. We understand and acknowledge that God is the giver of our daily bread, right? And so notice how he's got this uh, outlined in, his, in this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts. Now, now what does that mean? What's that and there? It's conjunction. What does that mean? The two go together. How, how are they similar? What's the similarities between God giving us our daily bread and forgiving our debts? Here's how. Here's how they're related. We understand that God is the only one that can provide for our daily needs, right? God is also the only one that can truly forgive our sins. Forgiveness is only possible through the work of God in our life. You cannot forgive and you cannot be forgiven outside of God. That's so important to understand. So when Jesus is telling us to pray, give us this day our day of the bread and forgive our debts, what we're saying is, God, I am dependent upon you to do this work in my life. God must actively forgive us himself by himself. Okay? Uh, just as he provides for us physically through himself. And this is important to understand. We'll get deeper into this in just a minute. But I want you to understand right off the bat, forgiveness for sins is the work of God alone. Right? He is the only one that can truly forgive sins. Next, Jesus tells us to pray that uh, God would forgive us our debts. And there's a little bit of debate about what this means. Some scholars believe that it is a monetary term, that we're asking God to forgive us our literal debts. It's not true. Uh, this word in the Aramaic actually translates into willful or habitual sin towards somebody in particular. So here's what he's saying. Without going into a bunch of detail, he's saying, forgive us, Lord, of our sins that we have committed towards you. Forgive us of those sins. Um, now, why do you think Jesus refers to our sin here as debt? I mean, what, what, is, what is sin? As a debt, because sin is an offense to God. Uh, every time we sin, it's like we make a deposit into a bank. And that deposit is known as God's wrath. Every time we sin, we drop a deposit into God's wrath. And on judgment day, he comes up and the balance is due. Right? Every time we commit a sin, we offend God and it goes into God's wrath account. And so someone has to pay that debt. Now, we'll come back to why it's called a debt here in just a minute, but I want you to think about this. He says... Pray that our debts are forgiven. Why do you think that's so important? Why do you think it's important that our debts are forgiven? What are some other ways that you can rectify debt? Pay it off, right? You cannot commit or go into debt, right? My, dad always, my daddy always told me, you don't have to pay somebody you don't owe, right? If I don't go into debt, then I'm not responsible for having that debt paid off, right? So, so Jesus could have kept us from going in debt to him, right? He could have created us and we, we could have never sinned throughout the rest of history, right? But that didn't happen. So, so why must sin be forgiven? Don't you think about this. This is really important. 
How many of you can pay off that debt? You see, here, here's the thing. And this is so important to understanding the gospel and understanding our sin. You can't, you and I, can't undo our sin. Right? We can't say, well, that didn't happen. Once we commit that sin, it's done. We can't undo it. Right? Uh, neither can it be worked off. Right? We can't work off our sin. And we can't outweigh our sin with good deeds. Can we? There's not enough good we can do to outweigh the bad that we've done in our sin. So the only way that we can pay for this sin debt is two ways. Either through death or through forgiveness. Romans 6.23 says what? The wages of sin is what? It's death. So every time we sin, we are incurring a debt that's too expensive for us to pay. We are spending ourselves into an eternal hell, basically. We are writing a check that we cannot cash, and we can't settle this debt on our own. So, the only thing left is for us to try to pay up at the end of our life, which results in death, or to have that debt absolved, forgiven, taken away. Right? So, um, here's the good news. <clears throat> The good news of the gospel is this. God loved us so much that he looked at us in our sin and he forgave us of that sin. Now, it doesn't mean he just swept it under the rug. Our sin costs God a lot. It cost him the life of his son. God killed Jesus because of our sin. So, so it's not that he's just going, eh, well, it ain't that big of a deal, we'll just write it off. Our sin was paid for, but it was paid for by the only one who was worthy enough to pay for it. Our, our trying and our, our efforts at, at, at paying for our sin on our own gets us nowhere. We will die trying to pay for our own sins. And so God made a way for us to be forgiven of those sins. And that is God's um, desired way of dealing with sin. The Bible says he takes no pleasure in the judgment of men. Listen to me. God does not desire to judge you for your sin. But he will. Why? Because he's just. He's holy. And sin must be paid for. But God desires to forgive sin. And so Jesus is urging us here in this Lord's Prayer Choose this same path that, that God wants to use of forgiveness. Don't try to use it to pay it off yourself. Choose forgiveness. Now, I want to bring us back out to the context of Matthew's gospel. Who is Matthew writing to specifically in this gospel? Remember? That's right. He's, he's a Jew, Levi, the tax collector, writing to Jews, right? So here's why I want you to understand that. This concept of forgiveness of sins was not something that Jews were familiar with. The Old Testament law didn't teach forgiveness of sin, especially offenses done between one another. What did the Old Testament teach? Remember? Do you remember, remember the law and the offenses towards each other? An eye for an eye? A tooth? Or two, you know what the Old Testament taught was retribution. The Old Testament taught justice. Now I want you to think about that. How many of you like that word justice? Hopefully some of us. I mean, we like justice when we are offended. The question is, do we like justice when we are the offender? And so we think of, well, they've hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Right? That's what the Old Testament said. Now, why do you think Jesus came about and taught something different than that? Is he contradicting the law? No. He's fulfilling the law. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the Old Testament law of retaliation was meant to show people, listen, that um, here's what should take place as the result of sin. Yes, justice should be served when sins are committed. Here's the problem. 
We're all sinners. And so who exercises the justice? If we're all guilty, we're all condemned. If it's eye for an eye, then nobody should have an eye. Right? If it's tooth for tooth, we should all be toothless. Because we're all guilty. And so what what Jesus is showing us is that in the law, it was to show us what a, a perfect society would look like. But we can't live up to that standard because we're not perfect. And so we look at this, and if someone kills your child, you want justice, right? Until you're the one that's the murderer. Until your child is the murderer. Then you want what? Mercy. And so Jesus is showing us, listen, justice cannot be lived out this side of eternity because we're not just. We are perverted justice because we are fallen people, right? And so there's got to be a better way. We cannot operate justly because we're not just. And so if God operated in justice towards sinful humanity, we wouldn't be here. So there has to be another way. So Jesus is revealing to us the answer to our imperfect dealings with sin. We're not to pray for justice for our sins, but what? Pray for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. Don't judge us for our debts. Forgive us for our debts. And I would venture to say that no one in this room has a problem praying for forgiveness. We all desire it. Remember we talked about in the beginning? It's in the deepest part of our heart. We want forgiveness. So we don't have a problem praying for forgiveness. We will gladly go before the Father and say, forgive me of my debt. We should. But the next part is where things get a little difficult, right? Jesus says, pray, forgive us our debts, and here's the key, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And if there's any uh, confusion about what he's saying, he actually gives us a footnote down a couple of uh, (laughs) verses later. Look at 14 and 15 again. If you forgive others their trespasses, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. We understand that, right? But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So it appears here that there is a condition to our forgiveness. And here's what that condition is. That condition is our willingness to forgive others. So there's a direct correlation. I want to be clear about this. Justificational forgiveness, which means our standing before God, comes solely through faith in Jesus alone. Okay? We don't have to forgive all of our enemies before God will save us. That's what that means. However, that faith must be evidenced by our ability and desire to forgive others. Here's what that means. If you have received the forgiveness of God, you must be willing to forgive those who have offended you. And the converse of that is, if I am unwilling or unable to forgive those who have offended me, I do not have the forgiveness of God in my heart. And so what does that mean? Here's what this means. God's not waiting to forgive all, for, for us to forgive all the people in our lives who've wronged us before he extends that forgiveness to us, but his forgiveness cannot be present in someone that has an unforgiving heart. That's heavy. I want to explain that. I want to say this very clearly and boldly. You and I can't get to heaven if we harbor unforgiveness in our heart. We cannot go to heaven if we have an unforgiving heart. Well, TJ, didn't you just say that Justification is based on faith alone? I did. But true conversion of a believer means that our hearts are changed. As we have been forgiven, now we are given the desire to forgive those who have offended us. So, listen, you will go to hell if you choose to harbor unforgiveness in your heart. It will keep you out of heaven. Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, love your enemies. 
right? Do good to those who hate you. So for what, what benefit is it to love a neighbor, one who loves you? But I say, love your enemies. And then he says this, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Then he says in, in Matthew 5.22, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can't get into the kingdom. Well, how did the Pharisees exercise this? How did they exercise forgiveness? Anybody know? What was the law of forgiveness in the Pharisaical law? It was basically in Amos three times. You can forgive somebody three times. And the fourth time they mess up, hey, it's on them. I can harbor whatever I want to because they deserve it. Go with me to Matthew chapter 18. Flip over to Matthew chapter 18. You say, TJ, that's, that's very hard to say that I'll go to hell if I don't forgive. I didn't say it. The Word of God does. Um, here's how I know that unforgiveness will keep you out of heaven. Matthew chapter 18, start in verse 15. This is what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established in the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen uh, to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So here's what we see. We see what happened in Amos, right? Three times. I went to him personally. I went to him with somebody else. I took him before the church and he still wouldn't, right? So Jesus says, treat him as a Gentile or tax collector. But what does that mean? Look what he says. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say, uh, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Verse 21. So here's, here's Peter's hearing this, right? Okay, so three times. Here's what Peter does. Peter tries to be extra spiritual here. Listen to what he says. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times? So Peter thinks he's doing something a little bit more righteous, right? The Old Testament said, I only have to forgive him three times. And Peter, being the spiritual apostle that he is, says, I'm going to give him seven chances, right? But what does Jesus say? I say, what? Not seven times, but 70 times seven. So here's what he means by this. He explains it with this parable. And I want you to pay very, very close attention to what's going on. Therefore, verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and what? Forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him about a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I want you guys to understand what's going on. This is huge in understanding what forgiveness really means. Let's, let's talk about this, this 
this uh, illustration. There was a man, and he owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, that may not mean anything to you and I. We don't even know what a talent is, right? But here's what a talent is. A talent was the equivalent of 20 years' worth of wages for a labor, laborer. So it was 20 years' salary. Now, I did some modern math, okay? I went to McMichael, so bear with me. My math may not be exactly right, but I used a calculator. Just say the average income of an, of an individual, we'll just say, is $25,000. Okay? Just say $25,000. So 20 years at $25,000 is how much? Half a million dollars. Half a million dollars. $500,000. Now, that was equal to how many talents? One. How many did this man owe the king? 10,000 talents. So, 10,000 times half a million is what? <laughs> you ready? Five billion dollars. Okay, you got that? This man owed his king five billion dollars. The point of that is this. The man had a debt he could not repay. No matter how long he worked and how hard he worked, he could not pay back the king what he owed him. Okay? So what does he do? What you and I would do if we had a debt we couldn't repay. He fell down and he begged for mercy. He acknowledged, I can't do this. I can't pay you back for this. And so what did the king do? He released him. Now, that means that he was no longer even the king's property anymore. He let him go free and forgave all his debt. Man, how awesome. How awesome. How many of you have a mortgage right now? Would it not be awesome if they said, hey, we're just going to let you go from this? Right? Great. So, as a result of that, here's what he does. He goes out and he finds his fellow brother. Now, what does that mean? Fellow servant, right? Just like him, makes the same amount of money, knows the situation, right? This brother, this fellow servant, the Bible says owed him a hundred denarii. Now, that's about a hundred days' wages. A denarii, you got paid one denarii for a day's wage. So, $25,000, that's about $104 a day if you work every day. Okay? So, here, here's, <clears throat> here's what he made. Here's what he said. So, he owed this guy about $10,400. That's what the fellow servant owed him. Certainly something that could have been paid back, right? Was not nearly as great a debt as he owed the king. $10,400. What did he do? He grabbed the man by the throat and choked him and demanded payment. So what does the guy do? Man, I will pay you back. I am sorry. Forgive me. Give me time. I will pay you back. And what does he do? He has him thrown in prison until he could pay back the debt. Now, here's the problem. How much money can you make in prison? You may can make some, but, right? He can't make any money to pay the guy back in prison. So the guy's not going to get paid back anyways, right? Just like he was not going to be able to pay back the king if he was in prison. But he had him thrown in prison until he could pay back every penny. That he owed him. So, what's the rest of the story? The servants saw this, and the Bible says they were greatly concerned. So they went and they told the king what had happened. And the, the Greek says that they went into great detail about what happened. They told him word for word what had happened to this fellow servant. The king gets angry, as he rightfully should, goes and gets the man and tells him this, you wicked servant. What did I do for you? What did I do for you? I forgave you a debt that you could not pay. And you turn around and you do this to this man. And the Bible says he turned him over to the jailers. You know, the Greek word for that word jailer is actually torturers. He didn't just get thrown into jail. He was tortured daily until he could pay the debt back, which we've already established what? So what do, you, what do you think eternal torture is? And you can't pay anybody back the debt you owe. 
So this man is condemned to torture until he pays back the debt, which we know is an impossibility. So the question is, what does this parable tell us about what Jesus is telling us to pray in Matthew 6? Three things. By praying that our debts be forgiven means we understand that we can't possibly pay back the debt we owe. We have a $5 billion debt to God. Hopefully we know that. And we can't pay it back. Hopefully we understand that we have a debt we cannot pay before God. Therefore, we must trust in the amazing mercy of our King to forgive our debt. That's what this story teaches us. The second thing it teaches us is that the debts, the debts that people owe us are not greater than the debt we owe God. The debts that have been done to us compared to what we have done to God are pennies. The offenses that we faced compared to how we have insulted and offended a holy God is minuscule. We'll talk more about that in just a second. So because that debt is not greater than the debt we owe our king, our extension of mercy should be the same as the mercy that's been extended to us. And number three, we better not dare think that we can claim the king's forgiveness for ourselves while withholding forgiveness from others. So this prayer that Jesus tells us to pray in Matthew chapter 6 has eternal implications for us. To claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, yet harbor, hold unforgiveness towards a brother means that we have not received or understood the forgiveness that we've been given. Jesus is showing us that it is impossible to be a benefactor of forgiveness, but refuse to forgive. Let me show you why. Heaven is a place of forgiveness. You know there's no unforgiveness in heaven at all. Not a hint. There's no one in there that has a grudge towards anybody else. There's no enemies in heaven. Jesus came to bring a gospel of reconciliation. You know what that means? You know what that word reconciliation means? To reconcile with someone means that you make it right. And he brought a gospel that made things right between us and the Father. But not only us and the Father, he came to reconcile us to ourselves. With our brothers and our sisters. Therefore, to say you're a Christian means that you haven't received the reconciliation. Because reconciliation brings about forgiveness. And I know that sounds very blunt and forward, but that's why I believe Jesus specifically tells us to pray for this. Because I know, and he knew, what a struggle it was to forgive those who have offended us and who have hurt us. That's why he goes into this detail of the Lord's Prayer. Then he gives us two additional comments, and then a few chapters later, he gives us a whole illustration about what it means. It is a command, a requirement of God to forgive. You cannot receive forgiveness and not give it. Matthew Henry, the great theologian, says this. If we pray in anger, we have reason to fear that God will answer us in anger. What reason is it that God should forgive us the talents that we are indebted to him if we forgive not our brethren for the pence that they are indebted to us? Christ came into the world as the great peacemaker, not only to reconcile us to God, but to one another. And in this matter, we must comply with him. It is a great assumption and of dangerous consequences for anyone to make light of such a matter that Christ lays great stress upon. Our passion as men must not frustrate God's word. I want you to pay attention to that last sentence. Our passions as men must not frustrate God's word. What does that mean? I know that when we read, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And when we read, if you forgive your debtors, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't, He won't forgive you. I know that some of you in here, when you read that, you feel like it's a mountain that you can't climb over. 
because you have been hurt and offended. And every emotion and every passion in your heart screams out, justice, not forgiveness. I understand that. And as real as that may be to you, that still doesn't change what God has required of you. I know that's hard to hear, but it's truth. And here's the goodness of God. He does not ask us to do something that he does not equip us to do. He's not going, figure it out. Get over it. He equips us with what we need to forgive when we receive his forgiveness. And see, this is the basic understanding of the gospel. This is why I will give my life for the gospel because of this truth right here. We don't understand two things. First of all, we don't understand how offensive we are to God. And the second thing is we don't understand how forgiven we are by God. I mean, most of us compare ourselves with the lowest of the low in society, right? I'm not a murderer, right? We talked about that several months ago. Well, I'm not a murderer. I ain't killed anybody. So on the standard of society, I must be pretty good, right? So I may have offended God, but there's no way I've offended God as much as Charles Manson has, right? I'm not a child molester. I'm sure that they've ticked God off a whole lot more than I have, right? We do that. We fail to realize that, man, we are that person. You know, Jesus, remember when he went through that? Listen, if you, if you call your brother an idiot, you're just as guilty as if you've committed murder. We are that bad. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. We have offended God greatly. But we have also been forgiven of every bit of it. So let me briefly just remind us a little bit of, of why it's so offensive. Why our sin is so offensive. Because we, we need to understand this. Genesis chapter 1. The Bible says that God created everything with the word of his mouth, right? Spoke it into being, it was there. But man, then it came to us. What does he say he did? Do you remember? He, he came down, bent down, and formed the dust with his hands. You understand, he didn't make anything else in creation with his hands. But he made us. He formed us. And then he breathed life into us. That means he gave us a soul. He gave us emotions. He gave us the ability. We are the only thing in creation that is able to have a tangible, ongoing relationship with God. Even the angels in heaven can't have a relationship with God. They obey him. They do his bidding. Ephesians chapter 3 says the angels in heaven look at us, the human race, and they are amazed at the relationship we have with God. We have something that nothing else in creation has. And God made us and he breathed life into us. And here's what I want you to see. The Bible says that he made us in what? In his image. What does that mean? God doesn't have a form. God is spirit. So, so when it says we were made in the image of God, doesn't mean we have two eyes, two ears, and a mouth like God. What does that mean? We were made in his image. Might know? It, it means we are bearers. We are holders of the essence and goodness and glory of God. Not only are we holders and bearers of that, we are to be reflectors of that. God created us to show the rest of the world his glory. That's what it means to be in, made in the image of God. And so here's the problem. When we sinned, we defiled ourselves, but when we defiled ourselves, we weren't just defiling ourselves. What were we defiling? The image of God. Sin doesn't only hurt us, it distorts the image of God. And so that's an offense to God, right? When, when we sin, we are in direct contradiction to the holiness and glory of God. Our sin is the exact opposite of the image of God. So, so here's what happens. 
As His image bearers, when we sin, we're trying to mingle two things together that don't fit. We're, we're trying to make light and darkness work together. And what did Jesus say about that? Light and darkness cannot exist together. So something happens. When we sin as image bearers of God, we defame His name and we tarnish the radiance of His glory. So that's what it means to sin and it is greatly offensive to God. Let me ask you something. If someone smeared your name and offended you, would you not have something to say about that? If someone offended you and defamed and slandered your name, wouldn't you go after them? Yeah. So that's what we do, and that's what happens when we sin. And so we've got to understand, you and I have offended a holy, righteous God who also happens to be the creator and sustainer of all things, which means that He can do with His creation whatever He wants, right? So let me ask you this. If you were God and you were the creator of those who were supposed to bear your image and they defiled your name, what would you do? Wipe them out, I hope, right? That's the just thing to do. You've defamed my name. You've tarnished my glory. I'll do away with you, right? That's the fair thing for God to do. If we're honest, we'll agree with that, right? The fair thing for God to do to us is to wipe us out. But the Bible tells us this, what? God reacted to our offense in a completely different way. God looked at us as his image bearers, but also as image distorters and image destroyers. And he chose, instead of pouring out his anger and wrath on us, to pour it out on his son, Jesus. And he put on his son what you and I should have paid. And because he poured out his wrath and anger on Jesus, he then offered to us forgiveness. The king has forgiven our debt, but also released us. And that, that is a releasing from any obligation to ever feel like we owe him anything. We've been set free. We've been forgiven. We have been cleansed. And his reaction to our sin and forgiveness goes against the justice of that our hearts scream for when we've been offended, right? And folks, listen. The forgiveness of our sins was not an easy task for God. I want you to understand that. It wasn't just a snap of the fingers for God to forgive us of our sins. We were the very thing that He hates. And He chose to turn it around and put it on His Son instead of us. That's not an easy thing to do. And so when that happens, when he chose to take our sin and put it on Jesus, it absolutely changed mankind's relationship with God forever. And because that was his reaction to our sin, which was very great, our sin was very great, because he chose to forgive us, his demands that is that our reaction should be forgiveness for those who offended us. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We don't forgive because they deserve it. He didn't forgive because we deserve it. But because He forgives and because we have been forgiven, He calls us to forgive. So real quickly, before we dismiss, how do we do that? Great, I've heard it. Now what do I do? How do I do that? By doing exactly what Jesus says to do in Matthew 6. Pray. He's not saying figure it out. He's not saying get extra spiritual, read your Bible more and it'll happen. What's He saying here? Pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Listen, if you want to see how powerful prayer really is, and maybe this is the breakthrough that some of you guys have been looking for in your prayer life. Maybe you've been praying and you've been struggling in your prayer because you don't see anything happening, you don't see any power in it. Maybe this is exactly what's going to break through for you in your prayer life. Because you want to see the power of God work, begin to pray for those that you don't want to forgive. 
Begin to pray exactly what God, what Jesus is telling you to pray. Pray, Father, forgive my debt as I try and attempt and move towards the forgiveness of my debtors. I believe God will literally change your heart and your life towards your offender. You know why? Because God does not withhold the ability to forgive if we truly express the desire to give. God does not ask you to do anything that he doesn't equip you to do either. And so here's how that happens. Remember I said the purpose of the Lord's Prayer is to help us gain the proper perspective? So the reason why we pray for forgiveness is that we need the proper perspective of forgiveness, and we've been all through that. We've offended greatly, but we've been forgiven greatly. And so when we have the proper perspective of offense and forgiveness, we understand the importance of the matter, but we also understand the power of the matter and understanding that we have everything we need to forgive those who've incurred the debt of offense towards us. Now, I know that that doesn't diminish the fact that the offense is hurt, hurts us and it's bad, but here's what happens. When we gain the proper perspective of forgiveness, here's what we see. When we bring our hurts and our offenders in, the light, in front of the light of the cross, which is what we're doing, right? By being reminded how much we've offended God, we remember what he's done for our uh, offense in the cross. And here's what we see. And I love this. We, we begin to see that the cross is not just big enough to cover my offense before God, but the cross is big enough to cover the offenses that have been done to me. The blood of Jesus cleanses all sin. Now the question is, do you want it to? The question is, do you really want that offense to be forgiven? Because the, the, here's the truth. Some of us, man, we want to hold on to it. It's, 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 almost, it's almost a prison for us, man. We hate it. We hate how it makes us feel, but for some reason, man, we, we don't let go of it. And so the question is, do we truly want it to be forgiven? Do we want to believe that the cross was big enough to not just to cover our offenses, but the offenses that have been done to us? Because I, I believe until we get to that point, are we truly going to be set free? from the offense. It will hold you 